On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we talk to authors of music books, bios, history, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Ryan Walsh, who wrote the book Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968. Welcome, Ryan. Hi. Thanks for having me. Well, first of all, congratulations on your book. It is a doozy of a read. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. There's so many threads that run through your book, and one of the things you did really well is tying them all together. I wanted to ask, what was your original vision or, or impetus for this story, and did you know all of these tangents and connections, or did you come across them as you researched the book? Well, it goes a little something like this. You know, I've always lived in Boston, and, you know, 18 onward, became obsessed with Astro Weeks. And so when I learned there was a connection between those two things, I just kept digging and then finally get hired to dig. And the magazine piece about just Astral Weeks and Boston's connection came out in March 2015. And that led to the book. And to be honest, all the other things in the book, I really did not know about. The oral history tradition seemed to fail <laughs> here in Boston for the counterculture. These things just weren't talked about, really. Ed Park, the editor at Penguin, who uh, worked with me, we set about trying to figure out how this could be a full book. The first idea was perhaps an expanded just this story because new things were coming out after the magazine. Like people I thought were dead were contacting me <laughs> and they were saying, uh, I'm not dead. I thought he was dead. <laughs> and so there seemed to be a little more developing there. But when I wrote the proposal for just that story, it seemed like thin soup. And Ed said, well, what if there were other interesting related stories happening in Boston that year? And just being a lifelong Bostonian and not hearing a whisper about the counterculture here in the 60s, I said, yeah, okay, I'll check. <laughs> like kind of immediately poo-pooing it. Within two weeks, my mind was blown. I just found all these threads and I started to see a way they were all connected. And we just built a structure for how this kind of story could turn into a big quilt portrait of a city, a year. Um, music and weirdos. Yeah, and it is all of those things. And as I read it, I kind of wanted to go back a few pages to kind of check the connections and, okay, wait a minute, what is this? What is this story? And, you know, the title is Astral Weeks, and people may think it's a Van Morrison book and that album, and, and they play a huge part. But the subtitle is A Secret History of 1968. So I would guess it's fair to say that both the year and the city of Boston are also stars of the book. Oh, without a doubt. I always joke, like, by the time you're 30, just accidentally, without trying, you've seen a dozen documentaries about the 60s. And I noticed that in all of those documentaries, Boston was never, ever mentioned. It's always New York, San Francisco, Detroit. The fact that Secret was in the title worked for me because this has been forgotten. You know, we had rules like stories told in the book could drift to different cities in different years, but they had to have this strong anchor point in Boston and in 1968. Well, it's interesting. Uh, Boston has its own reputation and character, and it is downright weird in the 68 period as well. You know, I kind of joked around. I said, I don't know if I can make the argument that Boston's cooler than it is, 
but I can make the argument that it's weirder than we think it is. Definitely. And a lot of that stuff was left of San Francisco in my mind. I was just, it was crazy. But uh, Astro Weeks and Van Morrison do form a major thread. It's on page four of your book. I found a piece of trivia that I never knew. And uh, Brown Eyed Girl was not the original name of that song. That's right. Producer Burt Burns was kind of calling the shots at those early sessions with Van Morrison post them. And he brought a song in called Brown Skin Girl that um, Burt said, well, that's not going to be a radio hit. It's Brown Eyed Girl now. Yeah, it's amazing just to try and let your mind wander if that song would have ever been played. Um, you know, certainly it wouldn't be on the classic radio hits now. So how did Van Morrison find himself in Boston in this period? Well, that was the, the, the mind blower when I started working on the magazine piece, because I thought, well, I can stitch together an interesting story with my favorite album, my, you know, my city. But to realize how strange the reason was that Van was here in the first place just made my mind real. The fact was he was on the run from the mob, essentially. And the long story version of that is Burt Burns, the producer of Brown Eyed Girl and some of his other songs, in the mid-60s started to get friendly with legit members of the mob in New York. And Brown Eyed Girl becomes a hit. Burt sends Van back to Ireland after they recorded. He said, if Brown Eyed Girl is a hit, I'll bring it back. And it indeed is a hit. So he's back in the States, but Van isn't seeing any money at all. And so he's constantly calling Burt Burns and they're having arguments about money. And in late 1968, Burt Burns, who was still in his late 30s, died of a heart attack unexpectedly. And his widow was not shy about insinuating that Van's arguments with him weren't helping. Now, compounding that awkward situation, suddenly the people who were just kind of stooges who hung around the periphery of Bang Records, Burt's label, were now kind of in charge. And so a guy named Carmine Wassel de Noya was now kind of Van's agent, and he was scaring the hell out of Van and his girlfriend, Janet. Janet says they put bullet holes in their hotel door. Hmm. And Carmine told me himself he smashed a guitar over Van's head. It just went on and on. And it was terrifying. And certainly it seemed unsafe. And certainly it didn't look like it was leading to a step up career-wise. Right, right. <laughs> Somebody gave them a lifeline in Boston, another potential manager who didn't work out. But there they landed in Cambridge in early 1968. And that was the peak when he came, uh, the, the folk scene, right? And then it's, that started dying off pretty much shortly after he moved here. It's interesting. It's a nexus point. The folk scene is fading and dying, and psychedelic rock Boston Tea Party is on the rise. So it's this perfect intersection where one's on the way down and one's on the way up. And that was also the rise of the so-called boss town sound, wasn't it? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I devote a whole chapter to the boss town sound, which is a story about record executives trying to manufacture a music scene which never works. Right. They saw the success of the San Francisco scene with bands like Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane. And some people were like, well, we just need to pick another city and we can make this happen. We'll all get rich again. Boston was selected because of the high population of college students here. And Alan Lorber, a music producer and an industry veteran at that point, hand-selected some green bands, called it the Boston Sound, and the debacle began. And that story is really interesting to me because... It's a story about how you can't manufacture cool, but it's also a story about how the kids in those bands, their dreams were real and they wanted to do a good job and they're, and they're now part of this machine. And it's also interesting in that Van, you know, resisted it. Van could have got a Boston Sound record deal the minute he stepped on Boston sidewalk, but, you know, he smartly avoided that. So you'd buy into that it was more hype than substance, despite, you know, some cool bands, but it was it was manufactured. 
you can't argue it was was not manufactured but some of the bands you know were definitely second wave and like going for the hype um and i agree there's a lot of interesting music there it's just like a cautionary tale of what not to do because even the good music got relegated to kind of a joke footnote in the music history because the promotional campaign was so bombastic and so just off Right. The Boss Town Sam was introduced with a two-pager ad in Billboard with a mushroom cloud imagery behind some revolutionary soldiers <laughs> and said the sound heard around the world. Yikes. It, it's funny because uh, John Landau is a native, I think, from Newton, and he'd become you know, Springsteen's manager, as you know. But then he was a writer, and he wrote The Sound of Boston, Kerplop. So. Yeah, Landau kind of writes the big takedown piece of the scene in Rolling Stone. You know, it's funny, I talked to Landau for the book, and he was slightly regretful about that piece. I mean, if you re-look at that piece, the meanest things that are said are not in the text, they're the captions of the photos, mm. and they're the headlines. If you're a writer, you know that you usually don't author those, those are the editors. But, you know, Landau, he just loved the remains, he loved the Boston folk scene, and it just struck him as phony, and he called it out. When I talked to him, you know, 50 years later, he did feel bad for the kids. Yeah. Joe Smith, who is a Warner Brothers legend, he comes up to Boston to the catacombs to see Van, and now listed as the Van Morrison controversy. And this gig tracks pretty much all the way through your book. What's the legend versus the reality of this gig, or vice versa? Well, the whole book is kind of a search to parse the legend from the reality. Just to catch your listeners up if, they, if they're unfamiliar, Van starts a band in Boston with Boston musicians, young kids mostly, and he calls it the Van Morrison Controversy. It's only in Boston he uses that band name. Pretty much all spring and summer, they play shows and they rehearse. And this weird change happens between what you hear in Brown Eyed Girl and what would be the sound of Astro Weeks. So I always thought there was a missing piece there. I was like, well, how did that sound shift happen? The legend was that Peter Wolf of the Jay Giles Band was Van's friend, and he recorded a late August show of Van and his Boston musicians that provided that missing link and supposedly, you know, sounded like Astro Weeks before Astro Weeks was recorded. So the whole book is kind of a holy grail search where I'm trying to locate and hear these tapes. And it's also a nice little history, too, of Boston and, and the music scene. And, you know, you had the Boston Tea Party and the Crosstown bus popping up. And the Velvet Underground was a New York City band, but they played in Boston more than any other place. So clearly there was a scene. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Boston Tea Party, you can't underestimate the importance of the Boston Tea Party Club, on, uh, especially that original on East Berkeley Street. That's Boston's first rock and roll palace. It's, it's beyond the coffee house, and it's, you know, no one's playing stadiums yet. If you look at the Tea Party's, what, three, four-year existence, you can look at the lineup of every night and be like, wow, yeah. I would have loved to have seen that show. There was a genuine scene unrelated, I'd say, to the Boston sound. It's funny, too, because Boston had and still has sort of an uptight reputation. But the Velvet Underground, you know, they had the S&M thing going on in their shows. And there's an art film that was banned everywhere. And that's playing routinely at, I think, Symphony Hall. You know, there's definitely people who weren't so uptight. Well, yeah, I think Boston has often been this tug of war between a Puritan hangover and uh, forward-thinking minds and spirits. And that's definitely embodied there. I mean, the Velvet Underground... It's interesting. A lot of people thought they were a Boston band. Um, they just, they kind of shut out New York and just kind of refused to play there. There's different reasons people posit why. But, you know, they played, I think, 60 or 70 times in Boston over a three-year period or something. 
you know, it's John Cale's final show. It's Nico's final show in Boston. They get the replacement for Cale in Boston with Doug Yule. I had just never seen that precise Velvet Underground Boston story fleshed out in a way that I was satisfied with. So that that ended up being a whole chapter in the book. Yeah, it's a good one, too, as a fan of that band and, and how they mutated even without Lou Reed and continued to have, you know, a connection. Yeah, it's so weird. You know, another, I don't want to say marginal musician, but another musician, maybe not so well known, even though I believe he played uh, Newport, is Jim Queskin. And he features quite big in the book. Uh, the Queskin Jug Band featured Jeff and Maria Moldar. You know, frankly, it's a little creepy. You're right. I mean, the Van and Astro Weeks are the A story of the book. The B parallel story is of Jim Queskin, Mel Lyman, and the Fort Hill community, where essentially Jim Queskin throws away an ongoing, very successful folk music career because his former banjo harmonica player starts calling himself God and starting a commune in Roxbury, and Jim disbands the band to move there and work with and for Mel. Their story gets really strange. It's dotted with more music. They keep kind of making music. You know, Mel has a mysterious ending that no one knows exactly what happened. And their story's still kind of ongoing. They still own those houses. They're still up there. Jim Queskin, I think, is playing a live live stream concert for Prasim tonight. Wow, wow. Um, so it's all still ongoing. So the Fort Hill community, which is what it was known as, that's still around. Well, essentially, I mean, yes, the houses they bought in the late 60s on Ford Ave in Roxbury, they all still own, and many of them live up there, or if not there, one of the other properties acquired throughout the decade. So yeah, I would say, and they still call themselves family. So I'd say yes. It's kind of a, a mystical, less violent Manson scene in a way, isn't it? I mean, it's it's very much family. People are married there. They each have their roles and... and um... It depends on who you ask about the wholesomeness or the creepiness in which it leaned towards. They were certainly compared to Manson, and you know, perhaps unfairly so, but Jim Queskin has that famous quote in Rolling Stone, Charles Manson preached peace and love, and he murdered a bunch of people, and we don't preach peace and love, and we haven't murdered anyone yet. Yes. <laughs> yes. There's the, there's the, uh, the hook. And, uh, you know, David Felton wrote this gigantic Rolling Stone expose in the early 70s, that kind of sent them to retreat from the press. I mean, throughout the late 60s, the family was a huge press curiosity, but, you know, they hadn't talked to a journalist in decades when I came knocking. And um, they did give me access and talk to me and show me around the houses, but weren't happy with the book. Oh, they weren't? Wow. Oh, no. Did they reach out to you to tell you that? No. They tried to discredit me with the hand of Penguin Books wow. instead. They sent a document of what they claim were hundreds of lies I told in the book, you know, but the book was thoroughly fact-checked by me and the editor and then kind of lawyerly vetted by Penguin's lawyer. So we felt very confident about the veracity of anything presented as fact in the book, but it was still an upsetting process that they kind of kicked off. Yeah, and uh, it's a fascinating piece of Boston and music history that, I'd never heard of until I read your book. Um, there's lots of other Boston connections. You mentioned Peter Wolf, who you met with to talk about the Van Catacomb shows. And Jonathan Richmond of the Modern Lovers, obviously, was huge fans um, and friends, I guess, with the Velvet Underground and Lou Reed. The idea that Jonathan Richmond is like a natick teenager hanging around like a little kid around the Velvet Underground, that's like catnip <laughs> for me as a storyteller. I mean, it's just so adorable. I like love Jonathan's music and, and the Modern Lovers. Just to see him, you know, formidably glomming on to the coolest thing in sight, this being Velvet Underground at the time, was adorable. And, you know, John Sterling's teaching him how to play guitar backstage at the Tea Party. And then you've got Peter Wolf, who um, is kind of like 
everywhere on the scene. He's on stage at the tea party. He's helping Van out behind the scenes. And then he becomes the overnight DJ at uh, the first year of WBCN, the freeform radio station that starts in Boston that year as well. And Van, meanwhile, is getting his thing together, and he's playing down at the Cape quite a bit. And, and that's a really interesting glimpse. You've got the band kind of drinking in the car and cops knocking on the window. And then there's a parent recurring move where Van whispers something into the ear of a girl. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Van is, at the very least, an eccentric. And his eccentricities are on display in even these early stories. He's a true stranger here in Boston, and no one's rolling out the red carpet for him. So, you know, he's already paid his dues once as a musician with them. And he kind of repays them again all summer in New England, playing all these shows with these crazy Boston kids. But yeah, he would <laughs> he would have outbursts on stage. Joey Bebo, the drummer, reported that thing about him whispering in girls' ears and then the girls running away. I mean, all of us are complex. No one is just one thing. Right, right. We uh, Last week, we interviewed uh, the author of a Ted Templeman book, and he had lots of tales to tell about Van, and sometimes difficult, I guess, is the best way to put it. You never found out what he whispered into the ear then? Uh, no, I mean, he's not telling, and <laughs> I find the girl. Right, right. Oh, man. We can all take a guess. So everyone in that particular band, which is the Boston band, they all get on to the songs that will be featured on Astral Weeks, which Moondance and Domino are also being worked on. What can you tell us about this period in Van's songwriting? It is kind of morphing or changing, isn't it? Oh, for sure. And it's very fertile. He's writing a lot. He's got this um, reel-to-reel tape recorder at his apartment in Green Street. He kind of turns it on and zones out and just jams by himself for as long as the reel lasts and then goes back and listens, sees what's worth keeping. But a lot of songs from Moondance and a lot of songs from Master Weeks are written or refined or, or arranged here in Boston. And the great change from kind of an electric, uh, radio pop-friendly band like you hear on Brown Eyed Girl to Master Weeks happens that summer. And John Sheldon, his teenage guitarist, claims he remembers it very vividly where Van came into rehearsal and told the band that he had a dream that there were no more electric instruments in the world. And they, they were going to follow the dream's logic and become an acoustic band. But, you know, by the end of the summer, this Van Morrison controversy band is whittled down to a trio. And it's Van, Tom Kilbanya on upright bass, and John Payne on flute. And that's what you hear on the Catacomb tapes. And it does indeed sound like Astral Weeks without the strings. We're speaking with Ryan Walsh, who's the author of Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968. Another of the key people here is the producer, Louis Marenstein, who recognized kind of early on that there was something unique or spiritual about Astral Weeks. Right. So after Joe Smith from Warner Brothers checks Van out here in Boston, he says, this guy's worth it. And he starts to arrange to send a couple producers to do a fact-finding trip to Boston. And, but it just so happens that Lewis arrived first. He auditioned Van at uh, Ace Recording Studios off of Boylston Street in downtown Boston. And Van played him the new composition title track, Astor Weeks. And Lewis has what he explained to me is kind of a religious experience hearing that song. And from his account, they left to go to New York that night to start to arrange to make a record together. And Lewis, you know, uh, rest in peace, Lewis. I was his last interview. Wow. And for a while, he wouldn't talk to me at all. He was done talking about this. Rightfully so, has some sour grapes about how it all went down. I mean, uh, it's a long, complicated story and it's in the book. But, you know, uh, Lewis, right in front of me, would say, like, Van has no right to be so angry. He's a beautiful poet. He should have love in his heart. 
and just like heartbreaking things like that. Mm. He also said that there is a coded spirituality, and he pointed to the amazing song, Madam George. What are your thoughts on that song and, and perhaps who it might even be about? Well, um, I've thought a lot about that. I've written a lot about that. I wrote about it more after I visited Belfast for the book tour, because a lot of the streets and locales in Madam George are actual places in Belfast, mm-hmm. Ireland. What I think Lewis means by coded spirituality is, if you look at the lyrics of Madam George, not much happens, really. Right. And, it, and it's essentially just a chance encounter with someone you fall in love with. In this case, it, it seems to be about someone wearing drag named Madam George. <laughs> but... The feeling of the song is kind of a religious ecstasy. It sounds like someone is having a religious moment when you listen to it. Speaking in tongues or something. Almost, you know, with those repeated mantras. And so Van isn't, you know, using the words of the Catholic Church, for instance, in that song. He's introducing and using his own terms, but I think he's trying to invoke that same feeling of, you know, the infinite suddenly coming into the room and being right in front of your eyes. And T.B. Sheets, which is another great song, that was also first performed around this time, wasn't it? Well, no. T.B. Sheets was recorded in New York with Burt Burns at the same sessions they did Brown Eyed Girl. Oh, okay, okay. He's still performing it when he's in Boston, for sure. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new Factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. Another arc or narrative in your story is Ray Reapin of the Boston Tea Party. He founded that club, but he re-enters the picture with a new foray that you mentioned earlier, and uh, it was WBCN, which would really be revolutionary. I mean, Ray Reapin, without a doubt, is one of the hidden architects of Boston's counterculture history. I mean, you know, the three things he had a hand in, the Boston Phoenix, WBCN, and the start of rock and roll venues in Boston— all originate from him and are all up through the OOs were still a part of my life. Right. The influence of what he did in a few years here stretched decades. And he was an unlikely person to do it. He wasn't an artist. He was a uh, Kansas City lawyer who was at Harvard. Kind of got talked into renting out the building where the tea party was by Jesse from the Fort Hill uh, cult. It's a complicated soap opera story, but that's how it went down. So Ray is kind of an accidental genius. I mean, he wouldn't say this. <laughs> he would say it was all on purpose. There is an element of chance to his story. And he's one of the most (laughs) brash, funny, weird people I I spoke to for the book. He's uh, a true, true original, that guy. Yeah. And, you know, his work obviously lives on and it's amazing. You know, Um, 
1968 was also the year that Martin Luther King was assassinated. And there's a famous and well-told story involving Kevin White, the mayor, and a James Brown concert at the Garden and trying to keep the peace. And it worked. Can you recount that story for us? Sure. Yeah. You know, obviously, any story I encountered that had something to do with music, spirituality, politics was floating to the top of what I wanted to write about in the book. So when I realized the James Brown concert was that year as well, I thought, oh, my God, that is is quite a milestone to include in this story. After Martin Luther King is assassinated in Memphis, chaos breaks out everywhere. This is beyond tragedy. And Boston, which already has racial tensions, is uh, now on the verge of violence and rioting itself. And that's when one of the mayor's aides tells him, listen, a guy named James Brown is booked to play Boston Garden tomorrow night. And this is a problem because if he plays, it could be a place where people gather and vent and then go out in the streets and riot. Or if he doesn't play, that will be rebelled against. So it's this crazy, under pressure, 12 hours to cook up this idea where James Brown gets to still play his show at the Garden, but WGBH, the public television station, sets up and broadcasts it live uh, on TV so people could stay home and watch it, which they didn't get James Brown permission for. So you've got ridiculous things like Mayor White and James Brown backstage arguing about money. <laughs> you know, I've lost some ticket sales because you're putting it on TV for free. You know, I, I, this is a tragedy, but I still need to get paid. <laughs> The entire show, which you can watch in full on, on YouTube, I believe, still, it's one of the most spectacular live shows you'll ever witness. I mean, the stakes just could not be higher. James Brown, who's one of, already one of the best entertainers in the world, is now charged with keeping the peace in an entire city in one night, in one performance. And in a city that has had kind of questionable racial politics, too, you know, I mean, it's one of a kind moment. And there's a documentary film, I think, that GBH put out that's quite amazing. And it starts to get a little iffy in there. And people are jumping up on stage, you know, and the cops are letting them come. But James Brown is in total control of the scene. I mean, for most of that, it is. There's moments, even though you know how it worked out, when you watch that, you get nervous. Oh, definitely. Like I said, it's unlike any other concert film ever. I think that documentary is called The Night James Brown Saved Boston. There you go. I did look, uh, did some research on that, and I came across that and watched the whole thing, I have to admit. So I got wound up in that. Interestingly enough, or maybe ironically, I learned from your book that another rocker played to a near-empty house that night over at the Tea Party, right? Oh, right. Yeah, so the Tea Party also had a night uh, show <laughs> when uh, the James Brown concert was happening, and it was a band called the Amboy Dukes. That band was fronted by Ted Nugent. Yeah. And, you know, we all know what a um, terrible conservative racist he is now. So to think about, you know, he's probably got that in him back then, too. And the fact that he's playing to an empty house uh, juxtaposed with that Brown concert. You know, it's the kind of detail that makes you think there's some kind of organizing force in the world that also has a sense of humor. And it allows us to say only in Boston. <laughs> We're speaking with Ryan Walsh. He's the author of a great book called Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968. So there's a, a lot going on in Boston at this time. Uh, it seems like a perfect time for Van to go back to New York City and record the album that would become Astral Weeks. And Louis Marenstein, who's the producer, he put together a hell of a jazz band for that. He really did. Van argued he wanted the Boston kids to back him up on this recording. And Louis said, no, no, I've got a vision. I've got the players. So the Boston kids who, you know, helped arrange these songs in the way you hear them, were paid by Warner Brothers to go to New York and watch it be made. Yeah. <laughs> Which is uh, um, either very generous or super cruel, depending on how you look at it. 
Tom Kilbanya, his hero, Richard Davis, walks in to replace him. He couldn't believe it. Tom taught him some bass lines he was playing. Like, if you listen to Catacomb tapes, that bass line on Cypress Avenue is what you hear Richard Davis play on the recording a few weeks later. And anyway, so Tom is not on the album. He's on any Van Morrison release, which is a heartbreak for him. I'm sure. John Payne, the flute player, is more persistent and sees an end and eventually ends up on a few songs on the album, including the title track. And that flute performance is magnificent. And he's a 23-year-old Harvard dropout at this point. And he talks, you know, Lewis into letting him sit in. And he played several instruments, didn't he? Yeah. John plays baritone sax and flute. Uh, it's funny you mention that because... Uh, you know, all I thought about was what a drag it is that these guys get left out of the recording process. And then to get paid to go watch it just, it seems kind of cruel, but I would guess that they were happy to take the dough and, and sit in. And, you know, I forget one of them. I think it was Kilbanya really remembers that well for your book. I couldn't have done the book without Tom. He's incredible. I felt compelled to write the wrong for Tom and find the catacomb tapes and prove, you know, all these years he's telling his family, I was Van Morrison's bass player, you know, he's got no audio to prove it. Right. So to find that tape and let him hear it and let him play for his family was one of the great honors of my life. Now, they weren't just sitting around. They were also his live band still. You know, in the weeks between these Astro Weeks recording sessions, they're at Steve Paul's scene and other venues uh, performing live still. So they were still working. They were just not going to be on the record. The aforementioned Joe Smith of Warner Brothers gets Van out of his contract with Bang around this time when he's recording. Yeah. You know, the story that you tell of that, it sounds like it's right out of a movie. I know what you mean. It is hard to place exactly when Joe does this. The timeline is very close. I mean, things are compressed. I mean, they finished the album in October and it's out in November. But anyways, Joe needs to release Van from his Bang Records contract in order to get him onto Warner Brothers. But as I said, Bang Records is basically now controlled by the mob. So Joe Smith goes to Don Rickles' manager, mm. who he knows has some connections, and I'm throwing quotes up there, connections, and arranges a meeting. Essentially, Joe Smith went to an abandoned building in New York City, up some floors, and there in the middle of a vacant floor were a couple of well-dressed gangsters. He dropped a sack of cash on the floor in front of them, and they turned over Van Morrison's contract to him. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. I, I, I guess that maybe that's not as, as one of a kind as it sounds, but just the, the whole idea, you know, that this, you know, the head of Warner Brothers Records is walking around with a bag of cash. And right. It's beyond belief. And and certainly entertainment and organized crime have crossed paths many, many times. But a story that vivid with someone who would become so famous as Van, I think it's rare. <laughs> Yeah, and at the end of that year, in December of 68, Van sends for his girlfriend, Janet Planet, who is living with him up here. And you write that, you know, now that Warner Brothers has extricated him from Bang, what more did Boston have to offer him? Is it as simple as that? Well, yeah. Like I said, no red carpets were being rolled out for Van here. You know, New York was certainly the epicenter of the world beyond Boston. Cambridge and Boston were a hideout for Van and Janet. Mm. And when they were done hiding out, they didn't have to worry about Bang Records anymore. Why not rejoin the rest of the world in New York? And this is, you know, right around the release of Astral Weeks. You know, you mentioned it before with Louis Marenstein. He says Van wasn't too happy with it. And there's a lot of competing opinions of what Van thought and, and perhaps still thinks today of Astral Weeks. But in your book, he's quoted a few times that he didn't like it. Well, right. I mean, if you want a different answer about what Van thinks of Astral Weeks, just ask him on any day. <laughs> A first-hand report says that, you know, almost instantly, before he was even out, he was disappointed in it. 
they put the strings on. That's not Astral Weeks, you know, complaining about the strings. And, but over time, and, and to be clear to your listeners, the album was, an, was not an instant classic. People liked it, but it was barely in stores. And it took a long time for it to gather this reputation of what we think of it today. During that same process, Van has realized that it's recognized as his masterpiece. So he's also tried to, in a way, reclaim it as his sole creation. And if the book's anything, it's an argument about what a beautiful, accidental team effort this was. You know, it's, it's Lewis Merenstein choosing the songs, putting the order together, choosing the musicians. It's Janet collating all of Van's new lyrics into a binder. It's the Boston musicians helping him change from electric to folk. And then it's these New York killer session musicians delivering the goods in the moment to lay it down on tape. It's like a basketball team. I mean, so uh, Van's insistent that, you know, he's the sole genius behind it. He certainly should be praised to the hills and back because he wrote the songs and he's that unmistakable voice. But the fact that he won't credit everyone regularly is funny to me. It's funny also that you mentioned Louis Marenstein sequence the record, which, you know, is such a, a lost art form, you know, with streaming and those kinds of things. But that record particularly argues how important that is to a record. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, uh, the structure of that album makes it this perfect recursive loop. It starts being born again. In the last song, someone dies. You can flip the record over and they're born again. I mean, it's just there are certain structural things about the album that maybe the songwriter, Van, couldn't see. It took that third party to be able to connect some dots with the lyrical themes I mean, as someone who writes songs himself, I can attest that sometimes you don't know what the hell your song's about till a couple of years after it comes out. Mm. There's no Astro Weeks without Lewis. And you got to hear an outtake, uh, an extended version of Slim Slow Slider, and that would not see the light of day on the expanded reissue of Astro Weeks. Oh, okay. This is a little confusing, but let me explain. The 2015 expanded reissue has that extended version of Slim Slow Slider. Okay. But... When I played it for John Payne, he claimed that wasn't it and that there were more minutes missing. <laughs> so John thinks it was even longer and those minutes are lost. There's one outtake surviving in the Warner vault from Master Weeks that did not make it on the record. It's a song called Train, and I was able to hear that, and Van has never approved it for a release for a reissue. That's remarkable. I mean, you can hear why it's not on the record. It kind of sticks out. It's a little too bluesy, straight bluesy, and it's like eight minutes long. But it is remarkable in the lyrics, Van is singing about Boston and Cambridge huh. inside the song. So that's amazing. Yeah, that's cool. Maybe that's why I didn't want it out, though. Well, I doubt you even thought that far. But Finally, you talk about Peter Wolf's tapes of the Catacomb shows, and you finally got to hear them. You want to share that and what you heard that afternoon with the rest of the world? I know that in the book, you're, you're blown away. Well, listen, if you're a listener and you haven't read the book and want to, without spoilers, you know, shut this off for now. <laughs> Early in the book, I have this evening with Peter Wolf where he shows me the tapes on his bookshelf. And we have a great, interesting night talking, drinking, interview. And then he shows me the tapes and I say, would you ever let me hear these? And he said, sure, I got to get them digitally transferred. But yes, yeah, sure. And then after that night, he would never speak to me again. He really ghosted me. So I had to figure out a different way to hear the tapes. And the whole book is kind of this treasure hunt for those. And literally in the last few weeks, I was allowed to write the book. We had to turn it in to make sure this book came out in 2018, because that's the 50-year anniversary of the year we're talking about, which is important. So I can't talk much about how I ended up getting the tapes, but suddenly I had them, and I listened to them, and they were remarkable. I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. thought I'd never hear them. And it's Van, Tom, and John, 
in Basement Club on Boylston Street playing for an hour, acoustic, and it sounds so much like Astral Weeks without the strings. Wow. It's just remarkable, yeah. That's a very cool story. And for those of you that want to read the book, there's a lot more to it. So we did not spoil the ending for you. You should go read Ryan's book. It's really good. What else do you have planned, Ryan? You got another book in you? I hope so. I'm working on a proposal for a second book. After the book came out, I toured it like crazy. I went to Ireland, London, Belgium, all the United States. That was a big effort uh, that I enjoyed doing. I said, well, I can't write another book right now, so I'll go back. I'll make another album with my band. We were in the middle of starting to tour that record when COVID kind of... Uh, Effed everything up. Yeah, yeah. But I keep really busy. Um, I'm always working on a couple of things. I'd love to uh, read another book. This was a, a fascinating take. Let me just ask you one question since you brought it up. It's off my list of talking points. But um, I'm curious, what's your, your book tour, specifically in Belfast? My wife worked over there for a year, and I visited a few times. It's a wonderful city. And it's got a very unique Boston connection. Oh, yeah. Well, it's a sister city. That was uh, instituted by Mayor Walsh about a decade ago, maybe. Mm -hmm. So, um, But I did love that connection, yeah. And it was interesting, you know, I wrote a whole book about a Belfast kid being a stranger in Boston. And then because of that book, I was a Boston kid who was a stranger in Belfast. Wow, wow. <laughs> and I was there for a week for their literary festival. And they put me up and everyone was so nice. And people from the BBC gave me the Van Morrison locale tour. And I walked down Cypress Avenue and it was remarkable. I loved it. It's a wonderful city and Cypress Avenue. And you mentioned some other places in that record that are Belfast related. So I just was curious about that. Well, thank you very much, Ryan. Uh, it's a fantastic book. It's called Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968. And it is about a lot of things, Van Morrison being one of them, about City of Boston being another. And 1968 is when it all happens. It's very cool, uh, very interesting read. So uh, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com. And you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an all-music-books podcast. achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. 
In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions, and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.